On this week's episode of Paranormally Speaking, I will be discussing the Human Bigfoot War of 1855, the Smithsonian cover-ups, where they deliberately mishandled, hid away, and demolished giant humanoid skeletons and possible deceased Bigfoot. That will be some of the things I'll be covering, among others, this week. In this week's episode of Paranormally Speaking, I'm your host, Neil Parks. The Bigfoot Human War of 1855. This took place in Oklahoma. Ever hear a story that has been repeated so many times that you don't look into it yourself? You just pass it along. Hey, if the story hasn't changed after years of hearing it, it must be true, right? Advertisers use reptilians all the time, and we do it to ourselves when a subject fascinates us. One such story comes from Oklahoma in 1855. It is a tale of humans versus Bigfoot, an actual war. The story has what anyone would want, action, adventure, real names and places, along with saving the day. The story has been modified throughout the years, but the basic facts and characters have remained the same. The story, as it originally appeared, Hamas to be, was an unusually large man, even for the Choctaw Indian. His father, Hanali Tubi, stood two inches over eight feet in height and weighed 540 pounds. Hama and his six sons stood about a foot shorter than Palumi, or father, Tubi. They were large, exceedingly strong, fierce warriors. Hamas and his sons were the point riders for a troop of Choctaw, Calvary, known as the Light Horsemen. Many of the Choctaw nation thought it was humorous that such large men riding draft horses referred to themselves as Light Horsemen. Tubi's men experienced something which none would ever forget. This day's assignment was to flush out some bandits that had been preying upon local farmers. A 30-man troop would be going into the area which later in the state of Oklahoma became the McCurtain County Wilderness Area. These bandits had been not only taking large quantities of corn, squash, and beans, but had as well been taking very young children. This thievery had been taking place across the border in Arkansas as well, as in the Indian Territory. The captain of the troop of Choctaw Calvary was a man named Joshua Lafleur. Captain Lafleur was of mixed blood, part French, part Choctaw. The men deeply respected him. Joshua Lafleur was impeccably honest and was a very brave person to a fault. The men had been traveling horseback nonstop since 3 p.m., 3 o'clock in the morning, until about 3 p.m. that day. They began their assignment at the tribal capital of Tuscaloma, and when they finally came to the Clover River, they let their horses eat, and the men decided to rest and eat as well. Nonstop riding for about 12 hours, having to lead their horses across a little river, and a hot July sun were taking the toll on the men and their mounts. When some time had passed, Captain Josh gave the order, and the men remounted, and they began the last leg of their trip at or around 4.30 in the afternoon. The troop came to the edge of the area, which the bandits were supposed to be inhabiting. Captain Josh signaled, 
and uplifted his hand that the troops should come to a halt. Sitting in his stirrups, Captain Josh utilized a ship's eyepiece, a telescope, and promptly turned his head and gave the command for a full arm charge. The distance between the suspected bandits and the troopers was about 500 yards. The 2B men and Captain Josh were at the front of the charge, and as the 30 men and he neared the thick pine forest where the bandits were, two things took place at once. The stench of death assaulted both men and horses, and the horses became uncontrollable. Horses were rearing and pitching and throwing riders. Captain Josh and the seven 2B men were the only ones in the troop whose mounts were disciplined enough that they continued to obey their riders and continued to charge into the midst of the bandits. When the eight men met with the bandits, they were totally unprepared for what greeted them. The clearing behind the initial tree cover was actually a large earthen mound. Strewn with the mound were numerous corpses of human children in varying stages of decay. Most of the bandits had fled, but three really large, hairy, ape-like creatures remained at the mound. Captain Josh drew his saber, and with pistol in hand, saber on the other, charged the huge monsters. The nearest monster killed Captain LaFleur's horse with one blow of its massive hand. The monster never flinched as Captain LaFleur poured bullets from his Patterson Colt revolver into the beast's chest. After emptying the revolver into the monster, Captain Joshua continued to press the attack with his saber. Many times did the saber meet with the brute's flesh, and many times did blood spew from the gaping wounds on the beast's body. So quickly did the engagement take place that the 2B men had barely enough time to take aim at the three monsters before one of the beasts flanked the captain and literally tore off Captain LaFleur's head. There was not want, not time for any of the delay due to the shock. The 2B men opened fire upon the three man beasts. 750 caliber sharp buffalo rifles impacted the three simian appearing brutes at the same time. From years of routine and practice, all the bullets smashed into the three monsters' heads. Six rounds were fired into the heads of the two monsters, which were the culprits that killed their beloved captain. Only the youngest to be, Robert, had the presence of mind to put a bullet in the head of the third monster. A legend was born that day. Robert to be, 18 years of age, all six feet, 11 inches of him, 373 pounds of him, chased down a wounded man beast and finished the beast off with only his hunting knife. By the time the other six to be men caught up with Robert and the monster, Robert was already decapitated. Holding the head aloft with both hands, Robert let out a primal scream, which made even the Tubis mounts panic. The light horsemen gathered their mounts and surveyed what was before them. Absolute carnage littered about the clearing. The partially consumed bodies of 19 children lay upon and about the mound. The stench of decaying bodies was bad enough, but the overpowering odor of the man-beast's urine and feces was more than the strongest stomachs could endure. After retching violently, the men of the troop buried the bodies of the children in the 19 small graves. 
buried their beloved captain, and as a matter of respect, gave him a 21-gun salute. They built a large bonfire and placed the murderous man-beasts upon it and lit it. As they rode back into Tuscoma, each man struggled with emotions and thoughts he had never before imagined. That story I just shared with you may seem outrageous, but yeah, it's weird. You might even think that it came straight out of a science fiction novel. But believe me when I tell you that that story and the events allegedly did really happen. And there are historical artifacts that do support it. Uh, There was a book written about the incident. True Bigfoot Horror, The Apex Predator, Monster in the Woods, other books such as Cryptozoology, Terrifying, Violent, and True Encounters of Sasquatch, Uh, another one, uh, Sasquatch Hunting People. You can find those on Amazon or through your local book dealer. The thing is, those events that took place in 1855 led to more and more encounters with violent apex Bigfoot predators. And these were not your typical run-of-the-mill sightings that we have in today's age, where we encounter a lone Bigfoot wandering around, scavenging for food or whatever, using rocks as tools, or standing off in the distance just watching us. Uh, These were... It was an alleged group of bipedal apex predators that were ape-like, that were abducting people, and they were eating them. So they were obviously flesh eaters, not what we believe Bigfoot or Grassman to be, which may eat smaller animals or roots and vegetables and fruits and other things like mushrooms and whatnot. To truly understand what is in the Bigfoot's diet, you would have to find uh, a dropping from a Bigfoot and examine its digestive system that way what its normal diet is. No one's been that fortunate yet. But after that incident happened, uh, more and more of these creatures were coming into populated areas and abducting people and feasting on them. And more and more people got involved with the Choctaw Indians and were hunting these bipedal creatures and trying to wipe them out of existence. And this was between Oklahoma, it was in Arizona, it it took place in Arkansas, it went on and on and on, and they were driving them out of the areas, the populated areas where settlers were setting up camp and establishing quarter. Computer, execute 12.4p operation. Optimizing algorithm, running encryption packet alpha, night, night, oh, I don't feel so good. What, what is it, computer? Is it hot in here? It feels hot in here? I feel a little clammy. I should lie down or something. A computer with a virus? Surprising. What's not surprising? How much you could save by switching to GEICO. Those oysters Rockefeller were a mistake. GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Not to mention the rough writer, Teddy Roosevelt, versing Bigfoot one day. Did America's most outdoorsy president have a close encounter with Sasquatch? There's no better time to explore how one of our most famous presidents might have drifted into the orbit of one of our most famous mythical beasts, then 4th of July. 
Theodore Roosevelt, president from 1858 to, no, he was born in 1858, passed away, unfortunately, in 1919. He emerged on the American landscape of a symbol of exuberance, some might say manic masculinity, before tumbling into the presidency as a consequence of his predecessor's assassination. He was an active outdoorsman for nearly his entire life. He not only loved hiking, camping, and shooting big animals with high-powered firearms, he loved writing about those experiences. His books included The Wilderness Hunter, Hunting Trips of the Ranchman, and Ranch Life and the Hunting Trail. In The Wilderness Hunter, Roosevelt describes a peculiar incident with a Native American guide while hunting in the Selkirk Mountain Range, which extends through Idaho into eastern Washington. Emil objected strongly to leaving the neighborhood of the lake. He went the first day's journey willingly enough, but after that it was increasingly difficult to get him to come along, and he was gradually growing sulky. Finally, he gave us to the uh, understanding that he was afraid because up in the high mountains there were little bad Indians who would kill him if they caught him alone, especially at night. At first, we thought he was speaking of stray warriors of the Blackfoot tribe, but it turned out he was not thinking of human beings at all, but of hobgoblins. Indeed, the night sounds of these great screeches in the mountain woodland were very, very weird and strange. I never before so well understood why the people who live in lonely forest regions are prone to believe in elves, wood spirits, and other beings of the unseen world. Something was lurking out there, but what? It's easy enough to chalk up those odd night sounds to conventional animal cries, distorted by distances and mountains. But Roosevelt was also an experienced outdoorsman. Something clearly spooked him to the point where he keeps this reminiscence relatively short in contrast to some of his other tales which go on and on and on and another passage from the same book Roosevelt describes a conversation with a mountain man Bauman who he tells a horrifying tale of a creature in the woods Roosevelt sets the scene frontiersmen are not as a rule apt to be very superstitious they lead lives too hard and practical and have too little time for imagination and things spiritual and supernatural. I have heard but a few ghost stories while living on the frontier, and those few were of a perfectly commonplace and conventional type. But I once listened to a goblin story, which rather impressed me. A grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain man, a hunter named Bauman, who born and had passed all of his life on the frontier, told me the story. He must have believed what he was saying, for he could hardly repress a shudder at certain points of the tale. But he was of German ancestry, and in childhood had doubtless been saturated with all kinds of ghosts and goblin lore, so that many fearsome superstitions were latent in his mind. Besides, he knew well the stories told by the Indian medicine men in their winter camps of the snow walkers and the specters, spirits, ghosts, and apparitions, the formless evil beings that haunt the forest depths, and Dog and Waylay, the lonely wanderer, who after nightfall passes through the regions where they lurk. It may be that when overcome by the horror of the fate that befell his friend, and when oppressed by the awful dread of the unknown, he grew to attribute both 
at the same time, still more in remembrance, weird and elfin traits to what was merely some abnormally wicked and cunning wild beast. But whether this was so or not, no man can say. Whether the event occurred, Bauman was still a young man and was trapping with a partner along the mountains. Among the dividing forks of the salmon from the head of the Wisdom River, not having much had much of his partner determined to go up into a particularly wild and lonely pass through which ran a small stream said to contain many beavers. The pass had an evil reputation because the year before, a solitary hunter who had wandered into this was slain, seemingly by a wild beast, the half-eaten remains being afterwards found by some mining prospectors who had passed his camp only the night before. The memory of this event, however, waited very lightly with the two trappers, who were as adventurous and hardly as others of their kind. They took their two lean mountain ponies to the foot of the pass, where they left them at an open beaver meadow, the rocky timber-clad ground being from their onward impractical for horses, of course, in that trail. They then struck out on foot through the vast, gloomy forest, and in about four hours reached a little open glade where they concluded and decided to camp. This is where things get bizarre for them. They encountered giant, hairy humanoid beasts that attacked their camp, ransacked their belongings, took their weapons, and dragged one of the men halfway through the forest away from the opening. Teddy Roosevelt, when retelling this story, had trouble catching his breath when relaying the information to fellow fellow trappers, fellow outdoorsmen, and fellow men of the presidential past. Things like this really bring to mind the truth and the validity of tales such as this when someone as reputable as Teddy Roosevelt can actually relay a story and write about it in books that I myself have yet to read, but am definitely dying to put my eyes upon. Roosevelt himself never names the creature aside from referring to it as a goblin, which was clearly one of the favorite terms for unknown beasties at that time. But contemporary readers with, will instantly note that it sounds a whole lot like Bigfoot, also known as Sasquatch, the hairiest, smelliest, biggest, upright, walking, ape-like creature to ever reportedly stalk the mountains and forests of the Americas. We can imagine Roosevelt's regret at never encountering such a beast face-to-face, only finding signs of it. No doubt he would have relished facing off against such an impressive cryptoid. You can picture the future president stalking through the night, the moonlight reflecting off of his glasses and his enormous rifle murmuring bully under his breath as a 400-pound Bigfoot sizes him up from the far side of a clearing. It would have been a battle for the ages. Available to order now, my first audiobook, Neil Parks Presents Truly Terrifying Tales, narrated by me. It's ready to order and download on bandcamp.com. My other books, of course, are always available to order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and lulu.com. You can also order t-shirts that I designed that I normally sell at conventions, festivals, lectures, and my book signings. I always have the 9-inch tall 3D printed Bigfoot silhouettes available, and last spring my first children's book was released, 
It was written by my good friend and fellow author, R.L. Walker. I illustrated this book, and it was a major shift in gears for me, considering that my writing and art style has always been dark and scary. To order any of what I just mentioned, you can also go to my email, which is parksparanormal at gmail.com. That is parksparanormal at gmail.com. Standing by. I've come across some amazing articles and books written about when Bigfoot attacks, different eyewitness accounts, different stories and tales, things to share around the campfire or when you're camping. There are things to read in the comfort of your own home, your four-walled world that's protected with locks and maybe weapons if you have them to protect yourself from a ravenous Bigfoot if they truly do exist. The first one is Bigfoot Attack, a true story. Barry Silverfoot, lead investigator for New York Paranormal, released first ever accounts of a Bigfoot attack and kidnapping by two Bigfoot creatures at one time in upstate New York. This book is based on true events related to Barry by a school teacher from New York. Names have been changed to protect identity. This book is dedicated to Gail and her husband, Bob to their family and their undying devotion to the study and investigations to find Bigfoot and understand its place in our world. Gail's search for the truth will go on until all her questions are answered. Her husband will continue to support her and be at her side, helping her investigate this creature's behavior and will not stop until the scientific community accepts this creature as a real entity. After three years of psychotherapy and counseling, Gail was encouraged by her loving husband to talk about what happened to her and to get the story out for people to know and be warned not to go into the woods alone, ever. Her husband, Bob, gave his accounts to the events also backing up what Gail has claimed to be a true story. The next book that I recommend is titled Sasquick, A Controversial Account of a Bigfoot Attack. Um, it's S-A-E-S-Q hyphen E-C, or actually apostrophe E-C. Um, I believe it is French-Canadian. In 1983, five people were brutally killed while on a camping trip in Washington's remote Okanogan County. 32 years later, one reporter who covered the incident needs to record the truth about what happened on that horrible August morning. The incident was originally blamed on an unfortunate encounter with a diseased bear. But that is not at all what the sole survivor described as what happened. At 96 years old, Stephen Patterson is afraid of dying without revealing the truth. However, controversial, a truth that he believed would have devastated him economically and the fragile state of the U.S.'s third largest and thinly populated county. Decide for yourself who or what was responsible. If you don't believe in Bigfoot, be prepared to believe after reading this. The third selection is titled, When Bigfoot Attacks. Native American legends speak of brutal wars between tribesmen and cannibal giants, an early form of ethnic cleansing from which only one side could emerge victorious. But are these stories true? take this opportunity to plug a friend of mine. Thousands of Bigfoot attack Seattle and Clint Romag's War of the Sasquatch. 
The Sasquatch Encounter 6 is now available on Amazon.com. Los Angeles, California. Market Wire, January 29th, 2013. Clint Romag releases War of the Sasquatch, book six in his Sasquatch Encounter series. Sasquatch from across North America have been secretly gathering in the Cascade Mountain Range, waiting to unleash their rage on the human race. The grandfather leads this unstoppable horde from out of their hiding places into open war, powered by their dark master, Shim Zazel, a force of thousands head west into the night, destroying town after town as they advance towards Seattle. Andrew Bridgeton helplessly watches the destruction from his home in Seattle, quickly realizing that some of the Sasquatch are coming for him. All he can do is prepare and fight for his life to the very end. Other Sasquatch head into southwest Washington to free Shimzazel and let his evil spread. Chad Gaiman, with the help of newfound allies, will make a final stand to stop these monsters, knowing that if he fails, darkness will fall across the world. The series has been building up to this point, where all hell breaks loose and the Sasquatch unleash all of their rage on mankind. Clint Romag said, What's scary is it's not a mindless rampage, but beyond the scenes, a dark power has awakened and is guiding this destruction. The main characters, Chad Gaiman and Andrew Bridgeton, will face their darkest challenges yet and will have to confront new deadly horrors. The stakes have been raised and it is exciting to finally get here. Artist Jerome Yonker returns creating the artist artwork for the cover. Jerome captures a great scene in the novel as the Sasquatch cross a bridge over Lake Washington into Seattle. Romag said, War of the Sasquatch is available on Amazon as an ebook. Unparalleled insider access. Get it all. Introducing the Sirius XM Platinum VIP plan. Our newest, most exclusive plan. Listen in two cars, plus stream anywhere with two app logins. Access a massive, exclusive library of live concert video and audio recordings through nugs.net. Have opportunities to experience live and virtual SiriusXM events, including VIP-only exclusives. Get all your questions answered by a dedicated VIP customer care team. Plus, get all the entertainment we've got. It's all included with your Platinum VIP subscription. Be a VIP. Call 844-711-8800 to learn more. Offer details apply. One login for activated vehicle. Not available in Canada. The Smithsonian Institute recognized the destruction of thousands of giants. The Institute admitted that it destroyed thousands of giant human skeletons in the early 1900s. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled to publish classified documents dated as early as 1900, proving that the organization took part in a major historic cover-up of evidence showing that tens of thousands of giant human remains were found across America and destroyed by orders of high-ranking evidence. The leaders to protect the dominant chronology of human evolution at the time. Suspects from the American Institute of Alternative Archaeology, AIAA, that the Smithsonian Institute destroyed thousands of giant human remains was accepted by the organization in bayonets. 
which responded by suing AIAA for slander and attempting to harm the reputation of the 168-year-old institute. According to the AIAA, Representative James Charward had new details that came up during the trial when several Smithsonian Institute insiders recognized the existence of documents that allegedly proved the destruction of tens of thousands of human skeletons, ranging from 6 to 12 feet tall whose existence of traditional archaeology, for various reasons, does not want to recognize. The demonstration of the human hip bone of about one to three meters long as evidence of the existence of such giant human bones, this proof broke a hole in the defense of the institution's lawyers on the slander case, as the bone was stolen from the high organization by one of its high-ranking curators in the mid-1930s. He kept the bone throughout his entire life and wrote a confession upon his deathbed that the Smithsonian Institute's cover-up and their operations. He said in his note, It's terrible what they do to people, he writes. We hide the truth about the ancestors of humanity, the giants who inhabited this earth, which are mentioned in Bible texts as well as other ancient texts. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled to publish these classified documents on everything related to the destruction of evidence related to pre-European culture, as well as elements related to human skeletons more than usual. The publication of these documents will help archaeologists and historians review modern theories about human evolution and help us understand the pre-European culture of America and the rest of the world, says Gans Gutenberg, director of the AIAA. Historical chronicles of the 19th century often report findings in different corners of the globe of skeletons of people with abnormally high growth, which brings to mind a situation in the south-central Ohio uh, portion of Ohio, when they were putting in a new by road that separates between a major highway and a road that connects into the city of Chillicothe, Ohio, when they were digging to make this new road, they found unmarked graves consisting of about six to ten giant humanoid skeletons that were in excess of 12 feet tall apiece. And when they made this discovery, it was quickly shut down. They brought in experts from outside the field, outside of the group that was hired to do the digging and the moving of the land. Local authorities got involved. They were kindly cast aside and told that this was a matter of a different authority. And these bodies were exhumed and said they were going into an archaeological find, they were going to do a huge write-up and reveal this to the world. But since then, the road's been put down. It's been years now. People have come and gone. Uh, we have an entirely new uh, sheriff's department because the local authorities were getting involved in trying to blow the lid off of all of this. And that sheriff's no longer with us, nor are his deputies. And the bodies are gone too. But there were several eyewitnesses that saw these bodies themselves and many of them were forced or co into signing a NDA 
with said organization that was going to reveal the findings and protect the integrity of the witnesses. But since then, no one's integrity and no, no one has really had their integrity protected. And those that are willing to come forward have talked to me, explained what they saw, described and have written and sketched out in detail what they saw. And the five people I've spoken with that were present or had seen evidence at that time, uh, they all match up. Uh, same situation along the Ohio River separating Ohio from Kentucky. In the early 1900s, several giant humanoid skeletons were found along the riverbanks and were removed and covered up, never to be seen again. Now, this seems to be going on a lot. And these things are coming out more so during this pandemic in the year 2020. I mean, the Pentagon has now admitted that UFOs have always been here. They've been watching them. There have been encounters with aliens and crafts that are not of this planet. And that hit the mainstream media. But because of all the protests, the riots, the pandemic, the upcoming election, the lunacy that is the Donald Trump administration, and on top of that, any and every other thing possible to be thrown in our direction to divert our attention. What better time to release information this magnificent about our history, about the mysteries of the universe, than now, in the middle of all of this noise that we're surrounded by? It's a good way for someone to slide in the truth completely undetected. As now playing one of the biggest podcasts of the week on the free iHeartRadio app. Now, number one for podcasting. Thank you for sticking with me this long. We've reached the end of the episode for this week. I've covered everything from Bigfoot, Sasquatch, giant humanoids, giant Indians, Native Americans who did battle with ravenous Sasquatch that were eating children. Is this myth or just a mystery that we may never solve in our lifetime? And there's enough proof to verify the plausibility of a cryptid creature such as Sasquatch. But the findings have been inconclusive, as always. Maybe the huge cover-up from the Smithsonian put a chink in the armor, but eventually we'll get there, just as we did when we discovered the coelacanth was in fact not extinct, or that the panda, the great panda of China, was in fact not a myth, but it truly existed. And when the Western world discovered it, it was validated as being true. Same with the gorilla. The Western world thought there's no way there's a giant man-ape of that size that lives in the wilderness or in the jungles until the face of white men saw it. This could just be a long list of things yet to come. Have a great rest of the week. Thank you for sticking with me this long for another fun-filled episode of Paranormally Speaking. I'm Neil Parks. I'll see you next time.